And what this is more about what happened. In other words, why do we not agree on what the purpose of the Christian life is? And why is this confusing? And how did this happen? And I love this kind of thought process because I don't like making the same mistake again. Is anybody else like doing that? I hate it. It's frustrating, right? So I always ask myself, why did I make that mistake? How did this happen? Or if it was a mistake in history, you ask yourself, why did that particularly happen? So we don't repeat it again. This is a great quote from C.S. Lewis. By the way, if you ever want to sound smart at a conference, quote C.S. Lewis, right? He's safe. Everybody loves Lewis and everybody loves Spurgeon. I don't have any Spurgeon quotes tonight, but maybe tomorrow. C.S. Lewis, he says this. There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to believe in their existence. Sorry, let me say that again. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased. So the devils are are happy with whatever one you choose, whether it's not believing them at all or having an unhealthy interest in them. So they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialistic or magician with the same delight. In other words, the effect effect on the human psyche has almost as if there's a magical uh, sense to it. If we were to think about just assessing the American culture, uh, we as Baptists, we like doing that, don't we? We like thinking about the culture. If we were to assess the culture... How would we define it? Would we say we have an unhealthy fascination with it? Or maybe would there, we would say there's not really an acknowledgement of it at all. That there's almost a sense of disbelief. I tend to lean towards this latter part. I don't think people are fascinated or even aware of the power of Satan. And when, when C.S. Lewis says this, you fall off on either side of the horse, I think there's a balance there where you have to understand and acknowledge his uh, presence, but also not be fascinated by it. So why why do we why don't we mind the ignorance? Because if, if I were to stop and ask you this question, don't raise your hand, but just answer it honestly in your own heart. How many of you were aware of the power and the danger and the influence that Satan has in your particular life today? And I'm not sure anybody would dart their hand up and say, "Oh yeah, for sure." And the question is, am I overstating it, or is this an overstatement? And we're going to see from Scripture, I don't think so. When we think about the influence of Satan, if he's effective at his job and we don't necessarily um, are aware of his power or aware of his existence, of his capacity, I'm going to go ahead and move this, okay? I feel like I'm going to smack it across the stage. We live our life, right? We think about our particular lives. We're, we're achieving our life goals. There's nothing really that seems to be slowing us down. And when we, when you're, if you're, if the Bible is true and it's fact that there is a war that's raging, what's the best kind of tactic? What's the best kind of war tactic? It's to have your enemies comfortable with your presence, right? If they're comfortable being around you, that's the easiest way to attack them because you're unaware of the presence. And so when we think about this idea of Satan really not having any existence or fear or awareness in our culture, I would say that the United States is under this, uh, what I would call the spiritual Truman show. You know, he's created almost this euphoric place where you can, uh, if you put in the, enough hard work and you put in enough effort, you can achieve. I, I think the greatest lie that Satan has created for the United States is that, that 
you have the freedom to be whatever you want if you put in the work. That's actually not true. But we believe that. And we, we advertise that to the world. So we go about our day simply assuming all is fine. And we will get up and, and we produce whatever it is that we're going after. And our idea is enough discipline and enough hard work will produce the results that we're looking for. So what's interesting about Satan and being effective when we're thinking about the tactics of a deceiver. Uh, one, one thing we do know theologically is Satan cannot possess us. He doesn't have the capacity to do that. The spirit protects us. But he doesn't, to influence us and to, to, to trip us, he doesn't necessarily need to possess us. He also doesn't need to scare us. Because if you're scared of him, what does that mean? You're aware of him. So he'd rather you not be aware. How does Peter say it? That he is what? crouching unaware so that concept is there if you're in Romans chapter 8 uh, this is the, where a lot of us would say well our hope is in the power of God and I would agree with you when he says in Romans 8 38 for I am sure that neither death nor life so Romans chapter 8 verses 38 and 39 for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus if you're feeling a sense of angst or fear as if, oh, I'm about to make you afraid of the devil, don't, that's not where we're going. That's not the point of it. Because if God's promises are true, there is nothing that will separate you from him. So then what can Satan do? What can he do? We have so many warning passages about his tactics, about what he has done, but do we ever actually stop and take notice of them? And this is where I would say, as Christians, in my own experience, and in my own church, Satan has done a fabulous job of blinding us to his realities and what he is capable of. Second uh, Peter describes it this way, and we're going to look at this later in our next session, so we won't turn there right now. But Second Peter describes his effects as this, that when he has done what he is sought out to do, he makes you ineffective and unfruitful. That's the description of it. He's made you ineffective and unfruitful. So we're not living in aware, we're not living alert of the tactics. And you guys ever wonder why so many men, especially even maybe even in this room, so many men struggle with the same sin every single year, year after year, right? Um, I've been pastoring now for 20 years and the current um, I've been in Tennessee for the last 12 years and in the role I'm at for the last five years, in every single uh, place I've been, it's the same situation. It's the same struggles. And what's fascinating to me about it is that Satan does a good job of entangling us so that overcoming sin becomes like the greatest accomplishment in life. Like, have you ever met somebody who has kicked addiction and if you're here, I am not here to put you down. But it, it becomes a badge of honor. Like, I used to be addicted to this, but I have been free for so many, so many whatever. As if that is the greatest accomplishment of life. You know, I, I want you all to applaud when I get done saying this because I think it's a great, it's a great feat. I have, in 41 years, I've never murdered anybody. I mean, come on. That is a great addiction that I've never actually acted upon. Right? You're thinking to yourself, John, not murdering somebody is not a great accomplishment. 
But Satan does this to us. Overcoming sin becomes like the purpose of our life. It becomes what we focus on. So I have men who come into my office and they're struggling, whatever it is that they are struggling with. And they are convinced if they can get over this particular problem, then their life will be so much better. The absence of sin is not the presence of joy. Right? But we're convinced of that. The absence of sin is, but Satan has done this. We're, we're convinced. And sometimes we put names to our sins, like our wife. No, I mean, we would never do that. But uh, the point of it is, is that we are convinced that the absence of sin is the presence of joy. And that is just not how scripture, and we're going to get into that on our fourth session. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at a couple of sections here in 2 Corinthians and 1 Peter. But turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's interesting how Paul and Peter, when they're describing this relationship that we have with Satan, he describes it this way, and the title I would use it as is it's a warlike mentality. A warlike mentality. So listen to how our brother Paul, he, he, he calls us to think about our daily lives and its relationship to these attacks that we're going to feel as a Christian. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Look at this. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid. So he's using obviously metaphor about the body of Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Did, did Paul use language like it wasn't a big deal? Or did Paul use language that he says, I'm actually afraid you too might be deceived as Eve was? Why would he use such language if it wasn't a serious problem? He's saying, you, as the body of Christ, I'm worried about you, church, because I think you too are being deceived by Satan. Jump down to verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will their end will correspond to their deeds. Uh, <laughs> that description is that Satan describes or disguises himself or his servants disguise themselves as an angel of light, meaning that you and I would not be able to identify it. Uh, just say it out loud real quick. How do we describe Satan? What are his key features in the United States? He has What? pitchfork and a tail and horns he's funny one sits on this shoulder and an there's no he he has done an amazing job of disguising himself why because he is the ultimate deceiver we don't think of it in this way but the results of his tactics are obvious but we don't know where they're coming from this is 1 Peter chapter 5. You want to write down your notes or turn with me there. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Towards the end of his letter, he's closing it down. It's 
Beautiful letter. But at the end of the letter, he says this to them. Be sober-minded. Now, he's not talking about drinking alcohol here. He's talking about what can clutter the clarity of thought. He's like, you actually need to be thinking in such a way that there's focus. And then he goes and adds to that. He says, be watchful. Uh, if you've ever played sports and, or if you've ever watched someone play sports, can you tell when a, when a player is distracted? Like his mind is not on the game, right? I remember the very first time there was this girl in high school and I was obviously uh, very excited that she was there. And I was playing a horrible, this basketball, I was playing a horrible game. And my coach finally pulled me over and he was like, Moffitt, what in the world? He's like, why are you so distracted? Because it was, I was uh, so excited for her to see. I mean, obviously how great a basketball player I was. But I wasn't being sober-minded. My mind was close. Instead of focusing on the task, instead of focusing on who my teammates are and what's going on, and, and I was very selfish. And it wasn't that I was distracted with something that was wrong. You know, the beautiful girl, that's my friend. That's, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But it was not the right thing at the right time. So when we think about this, sometimes we're thinking, oh, yeah, well, I need to keep my mind off of lustful thoughts. Not necessarily. We're going to see here in uh, tomorrow's session, uh, Paul describes it this way to Timothy. He says, do not entangle yourselves with earthly pursuits, meaning that it's not wrong. It just is not what we need to be focused on. It's a matter of emphasis or focus. So he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Now listen to how he describes it. Your adversary. He doesn't just say the devil. What is an adversary? Is it someone that just doesn't like you? No. It's someone who opposes you with action, right? He opposes you with action. So he's saying, you have to keep clarity of thought and you have to be watching because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What does uh, Jesus say to Peter? He says that Satan wants to sift you. He wants to suck you out. Because if he does, he then will make you ineffective and unfruitful. He can't kill you unless God allows that. He cannot remove your salvation. He cannot touch you unless it's ordained by God, but he can distract you and sift you out so that you become ineffective and unfruitful. So this is, I think it's fair to say that if we're not aware of this tactic, if we're not aware of this, we can become lazy. We can step back and, and not be aware and allow the world, aka the world that's being influenced by Satan, to influence us and the way that we think and the way that uh, we are processing information. I thought this was fascinating. It was an illustration. I can't remember who was, where it was at, but the concept of it was like, imagine that your head metaphorically is, is wide open and anybody in the world can come and put whatever they want into your brain. It's free reign. Now, what do you think is going to end up in there? Wholesome, great things? You know, you start thinking about that. Anybody can come and drop whatever they want in there. If we actually used that metaphor, what would we do with our head? We'd start closing that thing off real tight and say, actually, I think I'm going to be really careful and choosy on what I allow to be in my brain. 
This is another way of saying being sober-minded. Be aware what occupies your brain. Now, listen, I want you to think about this in a very important way. We're not doing this because we're trying to earn the favor of God. We're not doing this because uh, this is requirement for salvation. We're doing this because Satan's good at distracting us from what matters. There is no fear of what he can do to us, but what he is good at, and we allow him to do it, is take our eyes off of what really matters. A tactic of Satan, and he's good at it, is to take your eye and just move it. What does Hebrews 12 say? I think it's fascinating. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, right? But what does he tell you to do? Lay aside the, first thing he says is lay aside the weight, that which may hold you down or distract you. And then he says, lay aside the sin, right? You and I both know there are things in our life that become consuming for us. It could be our health. It could be our wealth. It could be our family, our job, our country. All of this is a means of taking what we should be focusing clearly on and being watchful and adjusting it. So his first tactic is to take you out of the fight and he can do it without ever touching you. Scary. Because he'll do it with your own brain. He'll take you right out of the fight. And here what's even worse is that you don't even know you're out of the fight. You don't even know you're being ineffective. Your purpose doesn't need to be the obvious things that are bad, you know, money, sex, fame, prestige, security, it doesn't need to be anything like that. It could be something that is wholesome. And I think, we're going to get into this in the next session, often Satan will take spiritual good, wholesome truths, and we become infatuated with them in the wrong way. And he, dis, he disengages us that way because we become contentious about it, right? We, we start fighting over it. So he successively turned our eyes slightly off course. And then all of a sudden, we feel comfortable. Even We can even feel spiritual about our position. And we're walking down the path right into danger and not in the way in which our king has called us to. And we don't know it. So what becomes our biblical response to this tactic? And we're going to look at a couple of other tactics, but I, I kind of just want to get us in the right mindset before I point out some more issues uh, in our next session. So this, this, just for a little bit, a few more minutes, we're going to just do what's called a wartime mentality. And I, this is the question I want to ask you guys is, what kind of a fight are we in? Because this is weird, right? It's weird to say fight. It almost sounds like we're that religion that beheads people. Like, whoa, John, we're not, you know, we're not terrorists here. So what kind of fight are you talking about? Obviously, we're not talking about physical warfare. Because what does Jesus say, right? Put the sword down. This is not, our, our weapons of warfare are not seen. There's a concept that's constantly being uh, mentioned we're going to, we'll talk about this on our last session. Jesus mentioned something. If you read the book of Matthew, he mentions it two times per page. He, Matthew literally says he goes from town to town, and he's mentioning this. From town to town. As a matter of fact, he gets done healing somebody, and this crowd's coming, and he, he stops the crowd and says, don't stop me, I have to go to the next town because I must proclaim this to them. Anybody know what it is? Want to take a guess? What's that? Kingdom of 
the kingdom of God. There are two kingdoms, right? There's God's kingdom, and what's the other kingdom? It's the kingdom of this world. We hear it things like this, kingdom of light and kingdom of darkness. And would we say that the two kingdoms get along well? No, because what kingdom put Christ to death? It wasn't the kingdom of light. It was the kingdom of darkness. See, you understand, it's even interesting how Peter uses that as a lion, that lion, right, the king of the kingdom. So there's this language that's happening where we are living literally in two opposing kingdoms. Because when we become a part of the kingdom of light, we aren't taken out of the kingdom of darkness. That would be amazing, by the way, if that could be the case. It'd make living life here a lot easier. But we're not. We remain here. Right, well, what does Jesus say? Father, I'm not asking you to take, I'm not, please, I'm not asking you to take them out of this world, right? But give them the strength, give them the power, understanding my love as they remain here. Uh, Paul uses this, I'm getting ahead of myself, but Paul uses this language and he calls us sojourners, right? We're, we're aliens, we're from another country. So we wear the king's robe, we hold the king's love, we reflect the king's uh, ethic. How many times does Jesus say this? The kingdom of heaven is like. The king, he is trying to help them understand you are in living in a spiritual kingdom that cannot be, see, uh, be seen. Because literally Jesus tells them, you can't point to the kingdom. Here it is. But the two kingdoms are opposing each other. Turn with me real quick to First Corinthians, sorry, First Timothy chapter 1. Paul is going to use this... Uh, very pointedly, that there is an opposition and there is a war that's happening between the two kingdoms. It's not a physical war, a war that you can see. And this is how he uses it. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Do you think he's telling Timothy to have a warlike mentality? I think so. Holding faith and good conscience by rejecting this, some have shipwrecked their faith. <laughs> Do you think Paul's being a little exaggerated here in this text? Or is he trying to make a point? To not have a warlike mentality, what's the result? They shipwrecked their faith. I don't think he means they lost their salvation. I think it's, he's describing it the same way Peter does, is they become ineffective in what they're supposed to be about. You can just write this down. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3, you may know this. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of the divine power to destroy strongholds. So, when we do not walk around sober-minded with the concept of I am in the kingdom of light spiritually, I represent the king, and I am in opposition to the kingdom of darkness, not physically, but spiritually, and I have weapons that are used, and we know what that weapon is, right? The gospel, to take down, I love this, it's not, well, we're just helping people out. He says, taking down strongholds. What holds people captive? It's their sin. Right? In the kingdom of darkness. Or we know this one, Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil in heavenly places. I think it makes sense now when Peter says, be sober-minded, that this is a serious situation that we find ourselves in. That we live in a world where we as Christians know there's a spiritual war going on, but the world doesn't know that. And we can see it. We can see its effects. And when we're not sober-minded, and we're distracted by the things of this world, people remain in bondage. We remain in bondage. Because we walk around as if there's no threat. There is no problems. I remember when I took uh, my kids to the largest children's museum, which is in, um, uh, where is that? That's in, uh, thank you. And my youngest daughter, Jane at the time, she was probably five, uh, she is afraid of nothing. And so my job, my wife said, your one job is to make sure that you keep track of Jane. And for the first hour, that was pretty easy. And so she and I, she let go of my hand because she wanted to look at this toy or whatever. And I said, that's fine. And so I literally, I just look up for a second to kind of see like what else is in the store. And I look back down and she's not there. No panic, right? She's got to be behind me. Turn around. It happened, right? You feel like you're going to throw up. You get hot, hot flashes. And then I don't want to be that dad that's panicking. So you, you're just kind of cool about it, right? You just kind of, you start walking fast. Like, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I got to go to the bathroom or something. And then about five seconds in, the panic finally hits. And it's like, where's my daughter? Because this place is massive. 20 minutes, we couldn't find her like, at all. She's just wandering around as if no problem at all. And all of a sudden, thankfully, a worker walks over and kind of goes, um, do you know what your parents are? And she goes, oh, no, I don't. <laughs> she had no fear of anything happening to her at all. Because why? She's unaware of the danger. At five years old, you don't know what the dangers are. But as a dad, I do. I'm aware of it. And, that's ex- and, and Paul's over here going, don't be that child. Don't be childish in your faith. Don't walk around as if, oh, everything is fine. I can just mosey on over here. I can do this over here. There's no problems. In some ways, I, I, don't, want us, I, I, I don't want us to be afraid of Satan in that there's something he can do to us. But if you want to talk about the purpose of your life, he has brilliantly got us all distracted and believing that we're not distracted while there's a war raging on. While there's a, it, it's not that there's something to do, like, oh, you know, we need to go out and share the gospel. That's not what he says. He says there's a war raging on. And because you're entangled in your own mess or you're pleasing yourself, you are ineffective in this war. All right, last verse, and then we'll close this session down. This is Ephesians chapter six. If you want to turn there with me, We'll read this whole thing in context now. He says this. Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So if you're thinking that the solution to this tactic is for me to tell you how to be strong men and that you need to discipline yourself more, (laughs) Paul's solution is not, y'all need a man up. That's not what he says. Y'all need to be strong. He says, your strength is not in you because if it's in you, you're doomed. You're done. 
I mean, what does Paul say? When I am weak, therefore I am strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Okay, Paul, what does that look like? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities. And we've already read this. Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. You, you need to understand that stand firm is not in your strength. It cannot be in your strength. I'm telling you right now, if I had to stand up before you and be strong for you, <laughs> all you need to know is this weak flesh bag has the same problems you do. I wrestle with my own thoughts. I wrestle with my own identity. I wrestle just like you do. So if you're thinking, wow, you know, this, this guy is he's a preacher, he's the only reason I can stand up here and herald these things to you is that I actually believe God's gospel is his power. Because Paul says the gospel is the power of God. I stand in the power of the gospel. Otherwise, I'm, I'm a weak, frail man. Weak, frail man. Sometimes this passage is used and it's actually turned on its head to be something that you're supposed to do. There's nothing for you to do here. When he says put on, you'll notice he never tells you how. Do you ever see that anywhere in the text? You ever tell you how to put it on? Anybody want to take a shot at it? Where does he say it? Some people will say it's prayer. Some will say it's um, Bible reading, Bible memorization. It's not in the text. Do you know what he does for the first three chapters? He tells you how sufficient and amazing Christ is. Uh, when we are, when we come to Christ in faith, he removes our sin, right? His blood cleanses us from all sins. And then what is it it says we're clothed in? His righteousness, right? I love this. Paul says, walk in the spirit or walk in the righteousness of Christ. This is a really bad example, but it's almost like a spiritual swagger. Like, you can't touch me. Satan, you can come and throw your darts at me of accusations that I'm guilty and I'm a failure and I have done everything wrong, and they're true. He's accurate, and he's right. But you know why they don't stick? Because the righteous robe of Christ, in this case, Paul says, the armor of God is what protects you. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. Are you gonna put on your righteousness and try and fight Satan? Good luck, bucko. You're doomed. I love this. He says, if you wanna stand firm, and fight back against the wiles of Satan. He says, you cling to the gospel. You hold on to the righteousness of Christ. <laughs> I have nothing for you as far as like, here are seven ways to become strong. I have one way for you to become strong. Faith in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You want to fight against Satan? No more of Jesus. You want to not be ineffective? You want to not be tracked by him? Know Christ more. I mean, how does Paul say this, right? Uh, and to the Corinthians. The, by the way, can we all agree the Corinthian church might have been the most messed up church in history? You got leaders sleeping with prostitutes. That's something. It's a messed up church. You know what he says? I want to come there and slap you all around. No, he says, I want to come to you and preach to you the gospel. I want to preach to you. Why? Because it's the gospel that liberates them from their sin. 
It's the gospel that liberates the clutterness that I think if I pursue that of the flesh, if I pursue all of these things, then it'll make me happy. And he says, me yelling at you and giving you laws is not going to do that, but me giving you Christ will. So what does he say? You're going to fight against Satan. There's a war waging. And if you go into that war in your own flesh, in your own right, in your own mind, in your own righteousness, you're going to fail. But if you go and standing firm in Christ, then you'll withstand. So yes, be a f- this is the conclusion I want you guys to come to. It's going to make the final application for you. On your own, you're a sitting duck. You're a fish in a barrel. However else, what illustration you want to make, Satan's got easy ways with you. You trust your own power, your own strength, and your own means, you're doomed. But there should be a healthy fear that if I am not clinging to Christ, I'm not holding to him, I will be deceived and then I'll be ineffective. And those who are in the kingdom of darkness and those who are being held by it will not be liberated, which is a part of our purpose. So let's start with where we went wrong before we got to talk about what we have to do is right. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that I don't have to stand here in my own confidence that these guys are going to listen to my wisdom. I'm just here to point out how we all went wrong. And Lord, hopefully, my my plead is that you will become sufficient for all of us and that for those of us who are here or weak in our faith, that we will encourage one another. We will lift each other up. We will strengthen each other. And as Paul says, let the word of God dwell in us richly by admonishing and singing to one another. Father, as we now sing, may these words go deep into our souls and as we glorify you with our words but we also encourage each other that the truth that we are singing is what we so tightly cling to in Jesus name amen